Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. We had guests this week for the first time yeah, in a we couple did. weeks. Yeah, back, back to it. Yes, we had Deanna Duran and David Lopez, who are part of Nueva Fuerza, which is a nonpartisan group, but they focus on growing civic engagement in the Latin American and Hispanic community here in Louisville and in Kentucky. Uh, we talked to them. It seems like that they are both kind of well established. They're working on a strategic plan, but they also are kind of at a moment in their organization where they're thinking about bigger and better things that they can do. Uh, So we talked to them quite a bit about that, things that they had done already, things that they hope to do in the future. Um, We talked to them also more broadly about the Latin American population here in Kentucky and in Louisville. Um, It was a really good conversation. I said at the end of it, you know, it's, it's a type of conversation that makes you more hopeful about the political system in a moment when maybe we don't have a lot of hope all the time about what's going on. Jasmine, thank you for putting it together. It was kind of your context so I was really glad to, to have that conversation how did you think it went yeah I thought it went great I met Diana and David while our friend Yvette was campaigning to run for judge and Yvette and one other person Nathan Hernandez um, who ran for St. Matthew City Council were the only um, Latin candidates who were on the general election ballot and they both won their elections um, but we but we don't have a lot of Latin Hispanic representation in Louisville or in Kentucky, despite um, huge population growth um, in that community. And so um, Diana has started this really cool organization and it was really great to learn about it. Absolutely. I mean, as the population of Latin Americans in Kentucky really starts to grow, organizations like this are are likely to pop up. And it's really exciting to be in this moment where you're starting to see this community really kind of come together uh, and and put themselves out there in the civic and political communities uh, and really grow their influence. It's going to be really good for the city, really good for the state, and really excited to to learn more and and to see as they move on. Uh, The show this week, we have lots of stuff to talk about. Jasmine has a really big and important segment about the state of the juvenile justice system. This is something we've talked around and talked about a couple times on the show, but never too much in depth. But it is a big issue that is facing Kentucky's government right now. Uh, that is, I mean, it's impacting kids and it's a really, really difficult, very, very hard situation. So Jasmine's going to talk to us about that. Uh, and, and after that, I have a few quick hits, but most of the show will be about the juvenile justice system. So, you know, Jasmine, uh, without any further ado, let's get into it. All right. So like you said, we, we've talked about this here and there um, in other shows lately, but we we haven't really talked about what's going on in depth. So we thought we'd do a little bit of a deep dive today um, because Bashir has been talking about juvenile justice. He talked about it in his state of the Commonwealth. The legislature wants to make it a priority this session. And so um, we figured we'd tell everyone what's going on. Bashir has announced Um, some changes that will be made at juvenile justice facilities. So I have done this before, but I thought it was worthwhile again to explain the three types of Department of Juvenile Justice. I'm going to call it DJJ um, facilities because I met with a legislator one time who didn't know the difference between them. So I assume that most people also don't know. Um, So DJJ has three types of facilities. They have group homes, detention centers, and youth development centers. Those are what I'm going to call YDCs. So group homes are what they sound like. Um, That's like the lowest level 
of placement and those are not secure. They're, they're like a group foster home. Detention centers are the equivalent of jail. So that's where children are pending trial. Um, so they, those, those children have not been usually been sentenced or anything like that. That that's where they are held um, while their charges are pending. And YDCs are the equivalent of prison um, in that that's where youth go once they're adjudicated. Um, but they're they're supposed to be more treatment treatment focused than adult facilities. So they're they're not exactly like prisons, but that's the equivalent in terms of um, pretrial, post trial. So DJJ used to run all of the facilities in the state except for the juvenile detention center in Louisville, which was called LMYDS. Um, that was attached to the courthouse downtown. And in 2019, Louisville Metro Council defunded LMYDS. And then DJJ now became responsible for all the youth in Louisville as well, but without a detention center here. Um, so now DJJ was responsible for providing facilities for the whole state. DJJ did have a YDC building on LaGrange Road um, that closed several years ago. And so when the detention center in Louisville closed, DJJ reopened their YDC as like a small short stay detention center. Um, but it wasn't meant for kids to be housed long-term there. And they didn't open up a lot of beds. So if a child was going to be in detention for a long period of time pending pretrial, um, for example, for a really serious case, a case that goes to circuit court, those cases usually take longer. Those, those children are unfortunately incarcerated for a significant amount of time before they even get to trial or a plea. Um, they were usually moved somewhere else because this facility in Louisville was not meant to be like a long-term detention center. It was just meant to be for short stays and they only had like 10 beds or so open. And so if children were going to be detained indefinitely, they were usually moved somewhere else to like Warren detention center somewhere at least an hour from Louisville. I'm not sure how many beds they eventually opened up at the Louisville facility, um, which they called Jefferson Regional Juvenile Detention Center, or JRJDC, um, or how long children ended up being able to stay there. But that's what it was meant to be when they reopened it in early 2020. It sounds like that there were some pretty significant changes that were due to... Well, when Louisville defunded that that center, I mean, the, the politics of that we talked about at the time was like, you know, the city's pension obligations went way up. There was a movement to push more revenue into the city. The Metro Council voted that down and in, in the cuts, uh, you know, the, the, the juvenile justice center, uh, the, the, the juvenile justice facility was closed. And it sounds like that there is like a significant like supply issue. Like there just aren't enough places for kids to go who come out of Louisville right now. That seems like where we're headed with this. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, we had a whole entire detention facility just for children here and it allowed them to stay in Louisville next to the courthouse where their court appearances were, across the street from where their attorneys were. 
near in the same city where their families are. Um, and now if they're going to be detained, one, it's it's a judgment call for law enforcement and judges because they have to decide am I going to arrest this kid because I can't just take him downtown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and and a judge has to decide, am I going to continue to detain them when that can mean they get moved a couple hours away? Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that definitely makes things more complicated. And, and it also, you know, puts children in Louisville in environments they haven't been in several hours away yeah. as well. I, I just kind of think like, I mean, and, and you'll get into this. Definitely. I, I see it in the notes, but it seems like we, when we closed down LMYDS or LMYDS, um, that probably that necessitated a lot of changes to the way that we were incarcerating children in Louisville, because when you arrest a kid and have to put them in jail, like, you, you know, we don't have the same system that we had before. And the adjustments are, are just proving to be very, very difficult in terms of right. uh, we're, for police and judges. Like, hey, yeah, you, and yeah. we're and we're increasing the state's detention population because of changes in the Louisville law had its own own facility. And so. Um, oh, right. Yeah. And, and yeah, all these I mean, and, and the reason why Louisville has its own facility is because this is where the people live, you know, like 15 percent of the population or more live in the city of Louisville. Like and so a lot of the children that get arrested just live in Louisville. And that's just kind of how it goes. And not having a facility here is just it seems like it's just right. That's yeah. And so, and so this short term detention center that they reopened it's not built to be a detention center either. It's a, it was a YDC, which is more like a treatment center. And so it's not physically built to act as a detention center. Um, so that's another problem with the building. And um, just like a little bit about YDCs. So many of them are, are kind of specialized. So um, girls go only go to the Moorhead facility. Um, children with sex offenses often go to Northern Kentucky's YDC. Um, one facility, I don't think they have it anymore. They used to have like a boot camp like program. Some have specific types of therapy programs. Um, more serious offenders went to Adair County. Um, but detention centers have not been specialized in that way. Um, they're based on geography and have housed male and female children. Um, but over the last few months, the conditions in detention centers have just not been safe at all. Um, we talked about some of the issues in Louisville. We talked about this back in September. So um, there have been issues with youth setting fires and escape. Um, there were problems with, the commingling of male and female residents and sex between residents, doors and ceilings falling, children not getting to go outside, not getting showers, not getting phone calls, um, issues with like security and fire hazards in the building. And so there, there's building issues and there's also like staffing issues. They're incredibly short staffed. When we talked about this in September, JRJDC was under 50% staffed and 
they were actually short-staffed when they opened the facility in 2020. So they've never, they've never been operating as they should be. And back in September, Michael Ross, who is a former supervisor there, kind of went on record and, and talked about the conditions there. And he said that children are being housed like animals, and that's what is setting them off. Um, and he said that he quit last year because of the dangerous conditions and that he didn't even have detention experience prior to like becoming a supervisor there. An employee also said that um, people were sometimes working 20 to 30 hour shifts. And there have also been structural issues that have led to youth being able to get out of their cells or there's been like metal available for them to be able to make weapons. Other problems, facilities have often kept units completely locked down. Completely locked down means isolation um, due to staffing issues. Because they're so low staffed, they can't let youth out or have activities or anything like that. So they, they're just in pure isolation, which, I, you know, certainly wouldn't lead to good mental health, I don't think, and would certainly cause issues. Multiple people have been injured and a girl was sexually assaulted um, during what they called a riot at a dares facility in November. Youth have assaulted employees at facilities. Um, and so just a lot of issues in Louisville, but also at other detention facilities, not just here. So since all of these issues have kind of come to light, the Herald leader has done just a fantastic job of, of covering this juvenile justice crisis. Um, the justice cabinet has had to testify before a legislative committee. And I would say it, it just really didn't go well. Um, I read some of the quotes from it and I, I understand that the administration is probably hesitant to admit to failings, but they also just purely like denied knowledge about things. Um, and I, I don't really think that that's good either because I think that that's just going to lead to bad bills from the legislature. Like there were reports about morale and various issues with youth and um, the justice cabinet secretary, Carrie Harvey, like kept saying he didn't have knowledge of those things or he hadn't read that report. And I think that's just pretty unacceptable. There have also been other problems um, with not disclosing things. So, for example, a worker in Bell County shoved a child to the ground while trying to restrain him, but wrote in the report that the child fell. Um, and he ended up speaking out and said that they were trained to omit things like admitting that they hit or struck or pushed or anything like that. Um, so just, I don't know, just all systems failure. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, this is the part at which I think you've you've explained as much of the problem uh, as you, you can. And, and to me, what yeah. it sounds like is just like this incredible, just like compounding, self-reinforcing problem that we are specifically, 
you know, struggling to meet the challenge of for big reasons. So like what I mean by that is to say like it's a compounding problem because this started in 2019 uh, when Louisville closed its, uh, you know, its its center, um, the uh, LMYDC. And, and, and basically all of the arrested children in Louisville had to start going other places and all of those places started filling up more than they were before. And then you enter the pandemic where all of a sudden you start having more and more staffing issues that start popping up. Um, all of a sudden, you know, coming, you know, back in early 2021 and late 2020, you start having like all of these staffing shortages all over the place. And, you know, you working in detention centers is one of the hardest places to hire for in the first place. Like it's very difficult to hire people for those mm-hmm. jobs. They're very hard jobs. It's a tough job to do. And, you know, uh, you, you have these places where people are, are required to work for 20 or 30 hours. Your turnover is tremendous. People are getting promoted to supervisor without having any experience because no one else is left to do this job. You have all these kind, and then and then all of us. Of course, these things are like self reinforcing coming out of the pandemic, and and this is something you know. I don't know how much credence to give this, but a lot of the people that I know that work with children in in schools or otherwise, they say that like children right now are experiencing so much more trauma. Uh, and and the, the pandemic just created a lot of problems for kids and, and and kids have always you know been offenders that things like this has always happened but like it seems like the pandemic has kind of like exacerbated some of this and, and you know this is just stuff I've heard I, I don't know this but this is just stuff that I've heard and it seems like that would kind of fit in with the narrative of what's what's going on in in these justice centers and then lastly we are specifically struggling to solve this problem because of of the non-functioning relationship that our the gubernatorial administration has with our legislature, there's no trust there. Um, and, and you know, for me, I put a lot of that onto the legislature. But Jasmine, I think you're exactly right. Like the fact that that trust doesn't exist doesn't mean you can just walk up there and answer the questions like that. We have a problem that we need to solve, and and you know, we have to you know, we have to do something about it. Like this is going to require the work of both the legislature and the administration, and they have to put it together. Um, like I said, I do think most of the problems fall on the legislature. But that is not to say that the Bashir administration is blameless in this. Um, there is part of this that they have to own up to, and we need to we need to solve this problem. It's a really significant issue facing facing our state. So, as a summary a summarization, did that make sense? Do you agree with anything or disagree with anything in a big way? No, I absolutely agree with with everything you've said. Um, and so, you know, now we have to look at so what do we start doing? about it. And Bashir's announced a few different changes. And so first girls will only be housed at the Campbell County detention center. And then boys will be housed at facilities based on the severity of the offense. And, you know, I have kind of mixed thoughts on this because you cannot have what's happening now. I started hearing about a year ago about commingling of residents in Louisville and just being like, how is this happening? Like this, you know, LMYDS was not a perfect place, but there were never issues like that. Um, And, and so you, you can't have that happening. You can't have sexual assault in detention facilities and and so I understand the need for the move, but ideally you would be able to house children in their own communities and it wouldn't have to be 
based on gender or severity of the offense. Especially since these are, you know, pre pre-trial detentions, right? right? I mean, so I mean there's a lot of like there's a lot of issues around uh presumption of guilt and innocence there that are going on as well and you know there's a lot of real issues about that for sure about about that i mean and i agree with you totally it seems like the root of this big problem is the fact that we closed the detention center in louisville uh and it would seem to be like one of the first steps should be dealing with that issue finding a way to house uh, children that need to go to detention centers inside of their own community. That seems like the first place to start, at least from my perspective. Yeah. And, and I mean like not, you know, we've, we've only had these regional detention centers, so not every city had one, but you were still, you were still placed based on geography. And so if you were a, a girl you and you lived in Western Kentucky, you might go to Adair or Warren, not Campbell County in Northern Kentucky, you know? Um, and so I, I, I see. Yeah. Something like- is, is certainly needed to, to stop what's happening right now. Um, I don't know if this is a good long-term solution. I, I see what you're saying. Well, you're saying like, if it's a girl that, needs to be housed in one of these facilities and she's in Paducah, she's going to have to go all the way to Campbell County. Um, Mm -hmm. And and the same thing, like if the facility for boys who are like, you know, whatever, like not as bad offenders is, I don't know where it would be, but if it's in Moorhead or whatever, and you know, again, you have a kid in like Fulton County or some Bowling Green or something, you know, that's still several hours away. And that makes it very, very difficult for their defense, makes it very, very difficult for their families, uh, your parents and, and their guardians and all that kind of stuff. So that yeah, that I see what you're saying now. Yeah, that is a big, a big issue. Yeah, I, and I think, you know, it. These these are children who, you know, their brains aren't fully developed. Um, the biological unit is something that's really important, and it's traumatic to remove them from that, um, even even if they've made some kind of mistake. And, and I think um, if you can keep that intact as much as you can by keeping kids in their communities, that's the best thing to do. Um, that being said, something has to happen right now to stop the issues that are happening in facilities. The other Bashir change that he's announced is that DJJ will get protective equipment for staff. Um, he said he's also exploring the possibility of tasers and pepper spray, and they're purchasing body scanners to be placed in every detention center to help eliminate contraband from coming into facilities. Um... I guess I don't really have an issue with like protective equipment or necessarily the body scanners. Although I never, I, I only ever had one contraband issue in a case. And it was a kid that had weed in his sock that the police officers missed when they searched him. So I just don't think that's happening as often with kids. Um, But I guess I don't have an issue with those things. But I don't know. I do kind of start to worry about um, purchasing tasers and pepper spray. I mean, a a teacher died at the hands of a police taser this past week. Um, So that is something I would worry about misuse of. So those are the... 
the things that Bashir has announced so far. Other changes that are certainly needed, um, more staff is necessary. Um, but these these jobs don't pay very well. Um, so I th- this would require a bill from the legislature to increase pay for these detention workers. The, these jobs are, are so difficult. And I, I, I think they made around like $18 an hour before the state raises. And maybe it's now up to like $22 or $23 an hour. Um, but it, it's really hard to recruit people for these positions. Um, and so certainly raising pay is necessary. And I've, I've heard, so Whitney Westerfield has talked a little bit about um, policies that would limit the number of youth in detention. And if you can't get more staff, uh, what would certainly help is decreasing the population. <laughs> and that is great that Whitney Westerfield supports that. He's always been an advocate um, for most good juvenile justice policies. But what I worry is that the rest of his caucus isn't going to be on board with that. Um, because the bill that I think is likely to be considered this year would not do that. Um, it's a repeat of Kevin Bratcher's bill from last year that would keep children detained on serious felonies for at least 48 hours before a hearing. It would remove confidentiality in some felony cases. It would require court appearances and truancy cases. Um, it would hold probation periods open longer if there's some unresolved violation, even if like the time would normally have expired, things like that. Um, so that bill could only increase the detention population. Yeah, and and here's where we get into the the situation with the testimony in front of the legislature, which, again, is unexcusable. I don't want to walk away from that statement. I think it was strong and, and necessary and important and, and true. But, yeah, like there are Republicans in the legislature who, you know, are on the right side of this issue for sure. And, and Whitney Westerfield is certainly one of them and has been consistently since he went into the legislature. But their track record of being able to pass legislation that actually affects this issue is not is not great unless you want to count like holding back bad legislation which i mean at what like what benefit does the bashir administration have for like working with the legislature when even though they might be on the right side of this this is what they're going to do they're going to make the problem worse and and it doesn't doesn't seem like that there's any way that this legislature is going to do anything to solve this issue in fact they're just going to like uh, add on extra things because they're going to try to incarcerate their way out of this problem. Uh, which- yeah, if, I mean, any bill that cracks down on juvenile crime or or something to that effect is is only going to make this crisis worse um, because the problem is that there are too many residents to staff that and building failures have compounded um, to create this total crisis that we have. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Bratcher said that he wants to target serious offenses like murder and carjackings and says that there's a loophole. And I saw this quote and just included it because I don't know what loophole he's talking about. Murders and carjackings, um, those are A and B felonies. They are, they nearly always go to circuit court unless the child is 13 or, or younger, um, where the child is tried as an adult and faces an adult prison sentence. So I I truly don't know what loophole um, he's talking about. 
And and like I said, measure, measures like that um, would just land more children in detention facilities that are already inadequate and just truly unprepared to hold any more children yeah. uh, than they already are. Well, and, and and this this is a problem that requires a significant amount of money to solve. And, and you know, it's it's like, you know, I I have this issue at my house, Jasmine, where like my chimney has an issue and the guy that fixes the chimney is like nobody wants to fix their chimney it makes your house uglier it's really hard to do it's really expensive and you know you just you just hate it it's this that's what dealing with your your prison population or dealing with the this incarceration system is uh you know no one it it, it, no one enjoys it this is not like a this is not a reform that anybody's gonna like get excited for be be happy about at the end but like you have to do something about this and that means spending money to solve the problem raising uh you know the 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 detention or the you know the the people who work in these places pay um figuring out ways to open uh you know do do something to deal with the fact that we don't have detention centers detention centers that meet needs in local communities we have to fund this problem in and in addition to like increasing the problem they're also just not funding anything they're cutting taxes and they're reducing spending uh which is just going to also exacerbate this problem in the long run so like the fiscal parts of this issue are something we don't want to overlook either it's a significant piece of this as well yeah absolutely and lastly you know I've kind of also had a problem with the way Bashir has talked about this. So he, in his speeches where he's talked about this, he's talked about youth becoming more violent. And I know the administration doesn't want to take the blame for this, but blaming it on children when adults are the ones who create the system and are the ones who are charged with taking care of these children in it. That's extremely disappointing to me. And when a, a former supervisor says that the kids are being housed like animals, I think it's really hard to expect them to behave politely. Um, these are often youth who have already experienced like a lifetime of trauma in their short little lives and whose brains aren't developed. So they are likely to make impulsive decisions um, when they're upset by conditions being away from their family and and I think to to blame this problem on youth becoming more violent, we've, we've always had youth in detention and youth who have picked up serious charges. And and I I just find it extremely disappointing that that's what our governor is saying when, you know, it's it's adults who have created the system and are charged with taking care of vulnerable children. Yeah, I'm really disappointed too. I think that there there is a generous reading of this. He did not provide any nuance. So, I mean, taking it face value, this is a really, really bad comment. It is, I mean... I, I, I saw it. I've seen it compared to like Hillary Clinton saying super predators like and I think that that's totally fair. Right. That's that's basically in the same vein. If you take it at face value, I did share it with, uh, you know, this comment when it came out with several teacher friends of mine. And, and you know, to be honest, like they were like, I, you know, I agree um, they wouldn't have phrased it that way. 
But they say like there are bigger issues that these kids are facing and they're they they are like there are bigger problems and people are more violent and um we we have all kinds of new bigger problems with trauma in kids that we aren't dealing with. Now, you need to add if you're going to say something like this and you want the generous reading, you have to add in a more more to it. You can't just say this and walk away from it. Um, but, uh, you know, that that is potentially a, a, a more generous reading. And, and just to talk about it in the larger context of things like, uh, you know, in economics, we have like supply and demand. The supply of facilities has gone down. We closed LMYDC uh, and, and, you know, demand has gone up. We do have like more and more charges that are people are picking up because of changes in laws and potentially also because of like the change in our society and the pandemic and inflation and all of these compounding issue i mean 2020 was traumatic not just for the pandemic mm-hmm. but also for like racial reckon like these these racial issues that were bringing brought to the fore police killing people like kids are f- seeing all kinds of horrible things that are going on in society right now and reacting in a way that i mean i don't want to say it's 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 definitely not excusable but like understandable maybe uh it, it's a very difficult place to to be right now for all of us it's especially for young kids that are already having so much trauma that would have absent 2020 and absent a lot of the other things that are going on um you know it but but you're right taking at face value this is really bad and it does look very similar to like hillary clinton saying calling you know kids super predators so yeah and and those those one-liner kind of things end up perpetuating things like the myth of the super predator predator, which leads to a generation of mass incarceration of, of young black kids, you know? And so, um, I think you just, you shouldn't say things like that and put the blame on, children <laughs> in that way that, that's yeah i mean you're you're absolutely right there that you're 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 absolutely right and and it is really unfortunate that not more it, it, like it is unfortunate no matter what if there is a generous reading of this it is very unfortunate that andy Bashir didn't expand on what he was saying when he was saying that and the fact that he didn't means you know you can only take it the way that it looks which is not not good it's bad for all the reasons you just said so I don't know. Hopefully in the future, uh, you know, as we as he talks about these issues, uh, first of all, uh, we can build towards success. We can, um, you know, do what it takes to solve these problems, both in the administration and with the legislature. Hopefully they can find it in <laughs> within themselves to work together to solve this really horrendous problem that's facing our state. Uh, and, and also the way that we talk about it can be better uh, because it is not good right now. Um, yeah. And like, as always, you know, so many of these issues go back to root cause kind of things. Oh, and yeah, absolutely. The the increase in behavioral problems among children is not going to be solved by separating them yeah. by gender or severity of the fence. It's going to be a sol- solved by things like early childhood education and community programs and, and things like that. And so um, I, I hope that what we see from the legislature are not um, carceral bills. um, But some, you know, something has to be done um, about 
the, the state of our yeah. juvenile facilities in Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, well, Jasmine, I, I won't tell you because it's already been kind of a tough segment. Which one I think is more likely, Kevin Bratcher's bill or J- Josie Raymond's universal pre-K bill? Uh, I think we all know which is more likely to pass uh, this year, though. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, there are lots of quick hits we do want to get to. Uh, first of all, um, this one's interesting, I guess. First thing, uh, we found out over the weekend that Ryan Quarles would be speaking at an event hosted by the Republican Women of South Central Kentucky, along with Jonathan Mattingly. Jonathan Mattingly is one of the LNPD officers who killed Breonna Taylor. Mattingly, I think he's been among the, the police officers who were a part of the killing of Breonna Taylor. I think he's... I don't know. I think he's probably been the one that's working the hardest to cash in on his newfound fame in this case in right wing circles. Uh, he has been promoting a book about killing Breonna Taylor. And of course, Ryan Quarles is uh, running for governor. Um, so this looked really awful uh, over the weekend. And a lot of people pointed it out. And, um, you know, I, I was not too surprised that this was happening, but something happened where Ryan Quarles did pull out of the event. So this was his quote. I, like other candidates running for governor, have been invited to introduce myself to this group. I was invited independently of other speakers, and due to the controversial nature of another speaker at this event, we've decided to reschedule to a later date. So, Jasmine, I'm interested in your perspective. What do you think it meant that Ryan Quarles was on the bill with Jonathan Mattingly to start with. And what do you think it means about him that he dropped out after realizing that that was in fact his speaking partner at this event? Well, I think what it says about him that he dropped out is that he is not, that he's trying to run as maybe a more moderate candidate. I, I'm not really sure about what it says that he was on the bill because I don't know, you know, I'm going to take it at face value that he was invited independently and I don't know if he knew or not, you know, um, if he did know, he should have known better. (laughs) Um, but I'll, you know, I'll take him at his word there and assume he was just invited to speak somewhere. And then it, it got put on a flyer with the name of a, a pretty controversial figure. Um, but I mean, I'm, I think good on him that he has decided not to do the event with Jonathan Mattingly. Yeah, I I think this is like pretty much an unqualified good thing that that happened. And everybody walks away from this looking better, except for the, you know, whatever the Republican women of South Central Kentucky who invited Jonathan Mattingly to their event. Like maybe maybe Ryan Quarles didn't know. Um, But if he didn't, he dropped out, which that's that's good. I'm glad that he saw that it was bad and decided to drop out. Maybe he didn't know ahead of time um, and he either thought it wasn't a big deal or thought it was a good thing. But then once the pressure showed up, he dropped out. So that's good for everybody else for putting pressure on Ryan Quarles. uh, And it does show that that type of pressure does matter. Um, It it, it works to tell people that's unacceptable um, sometimes. And and sometimes they respond to pressure like that. So that's good for us. Good for us for for putting everybody that, you know, wrote about it on social media or called their friends and told them it was a bad idea or whatever it happened. It word got back to Ryan Quarles and he saw that this was a problem and decided to do something about it. So, you know, I guess I feel good about this. Uh, I don't feel good 
that Jonathan Mattingly has a platform on any level. Uh, I don't feel good uh, that there are Republican women in the Bowling Green area that think that this is a cool idea uh, and and (laughs) that invited Frank Quarles to do this. Um, But I think all in all, um, I feel much better about this uh, today than I did yesterday uh, when I thought he was still doing the event. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, Charles Booker has landed a new job in Andy Bashir's administration as the head of the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives and Community Involvement. So this is an interesting job. The history of these types of offices is very interesting. It was created during the Fletcher administration. Uh, and, and each governor since then has used the office in different ways with more Republicans kind of using it to like fund churches and Democrats using it to do more like community involvement type stuff. Um, anyways, Charles Booker and his two Senate races likely has a strong handle on the different issues facing Kentuckians all over the state. So it's going to be interesting to see what he does with the job. So Jasmine, do you have any thoughts about Charles Booker's new job in Andy Bashir's administration? I think it sounds like a good fit. I, th- You know, we all wondered where he would go next after he lost his Senate race to Rand Paul. And it looks like this is the landing spot for now. Yeah, I think it's I, I honestly there's like different routes you could have gone. Uh, and, and I think staying in the public sector and, and working with Andy Bashir in the administration is is a really good one. I think the most cynical thing is like taking a bunch of money that you raised and like starting a different pack to do something different or like, you know, starting your own consulting firm and like cashing in on your thing. And, and like that, that's always what you worry about. Right. What's the the losing candidate in this race that I was really excited about going to do? And it seems like he's like engaged and actually doing work on behalf of Kentuckians uh, in the public sector, which I think is is really great. So hopefully he yeah. does a good job there. On Kentucky Tonight, uh, this was covered by Al Cross. I actually did not watch Kentucky Tonight the, the time that this was up. Uh, Senate President Robert Stivers opened up a slight crack in the door towards legalizing some form of cannabis. He said that he would be open to using it in end-of-life care. Um, as far as cracks in the door go, it is a very, very, very small one. Um, but it is the first one ever that Robert Stivers has, has allowed. Like, he has been steadfast in opposition to any form of marijuana or cannabis use at any level, at any point in Kentucky. Uh, and now, maybe not. Uh, so we'll see what happens with marijuana when the legislature gets back at the end of the month. But I wouldn't be surprised to see one of the bills uh, that is going through the legislature about this issue to kind of focus in more on end-of-life care. Uh, is that what you see happening, Jasmine? And what do you think about this quote from Robert Stivers? Um, yeah, it sounds like maybe we'll get a a much, a much, much more conservative bill. Um, but I think we're, we're just chipping away at, at Robert Stivers. We're, (laughs) we're going to get him one day. He can't, he can't stay in that job forever, (laughs) right? He's been doing it a long time at this point. So yeah, I, I, I wonder, you know, just getting anything past, is good um but yeah of course it's really frustrating that progress on this issue is so slow when it's really seems to be snowballing in really the rest of the country so that's really unfortunate for us but at least at least we'll have something maybe uh lastly cell phones and other similar devices that are owned by the state of kentucky can no longer install tiktok after Governor Bashir's administration banned it. Uh, there are also bills in the legislature which would seek to codify this bill into law. The app is extremely popular, uh, but it does have deep ties to the Chinese government, um, who often use cell phone networks for espionage reasons. And this type of move has been made in lots of other states and, I believe, in the federal government as well. Um, Jasmine, um, 
what do you think about the government banning TikTok? Is this, do you feel like it's uh, a lot much ado about nothing? Or do you think that this is something that's necessary? Or how do you feel about all this happening? I guess I'm pretty indifferent to it. Although I was thinking so many TikToks come up like through Twitter and Instagram and things like that. Can you do that? I don't believe that you can. I think in order for like an app to do espionage, I and I, I, I would say I, I know like better than some people, but a heck of a lot less than than many experts and then all experts. But I don't think by putting one of the TikToks into a different social media app, you can spy, but you can definitely well, do I, it. Yeah, I, I didn't think that was doing the espionage. I was just wondering if that is included in the ban. Oh, no, 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 no. I just don't think you can install the app. I'm pretty sure that that's how it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a, a problem with that. I There's probably, like, not really any reason that you need to be on TikTok on a state-owned device, and Kentucky Senate Dems could still make TikToks on their personal, their personal devices, phones, right? Well, I mean, that might be, like, the LRC may need to find Morgan McGarvey, or I guess not anymore, but they may need to find... Yeah, you, you, you know uh, Reggie Thomas or or David Yates or something, and that might be a way to discover where they are. You just open TikTok and see what room they're in. Um, but I don't know. I, I I agree with you, Jasmine. I think you're right. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird, and uh, I mean, this is also kind of one of those like generational things. I I am too old for TikTok. Um, I you know I I I I don't know. I don't know how to work it. Uh, yeah, I I think we should have a TikTok, but I don't know how to make them. So we don't. <laughs> somebody, somebody make us a TikTok. Uh, we'll become famous that way. Yeah, it's crazy. You open that thing, and it's like forty million views. I'm like, holy crap! That's so many. How, like, how, how many people are on this thing? And it's a lot. It's a lot of people. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, that's the show. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening to this part. Uh, you know, there's a lot of. A lot of improvement that's necessary in our juvenile justice system, um, but you know, hopefully, uh, you know that that gets going during this legislative session. All right, let's get to our interview with uh, Nueva Fuerza. Diana Doren and David Lopez are part of Nueva Fuerza, a nonpartisan group that focuses on growing civic engagement in the Latin Hispanic community and elevating the Latin Hispanic voice to have more impact in Kentucky elections. Diana was born and raised in Peru and moved to the U.S. when she was 15. She currently works at Humana and has been a lifelong advocate for education and professional development in the Latinx and Hispanic community. She was the president of ProSpanica in 2020 and started Nueva Fuerza as part of her capstone project with New Leaders Council. David grew up on both sides of the border in San Diego on the U.S. side and Tijuana on the Mexico side. David was recently the chief development officer for Metro United Way and is now the global knowledge lead for an international nonprofit called Teach for All. He also serves on the board for La Casita Center, the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, and the Rubel School of Business at Bellarmine, along with volunteering with Nueva Fuerza. So David and Diana, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast. Thank you so, for having us. Thank you, Jasmine. Yeah, we're really excited to talk to you all about your organization. So Nueva Fuerza means new force. So um, Diana, tell us a little bit about your organization and, you know, when did you start it and how did you get the idea? So it all started, like you said, as part of my uh, capstone project with New Leaders Council. It was something that, uh, like the actual 
mission I'm passionate about elevating the Hispanic Latinx voice. And I definitely see the need to do that. Uh, I myself, I'm not, I've never really been knowledgeable when it comes to politics. I didn't even know my district representative, so I knew there was an issue there. Uh, so I presented my capstone and it got, I got a lot of support from everybody. So I decided to run with it. But before that, I had previously talked to David. David is also sort of like my mentor too. So it, he, helped, he helped me develop the idea of coming up with uh, Nueva Fuerza, New Force, which mission is to educate, empower, and elevate the Latinx Hispanic community so they can become more civic engaged in Louisville, Kentucky. Meaning just also, just like educating them when it comes to politics and also helping them in the journey they want to run for office. Yeah, and so you already knew David when you were working on this project. So David, how did you get involved with Nueva Fuerza and what is your role with the organization? Yeah, so um, basically moved here in uh, 2018 to Kentucky. I'm originally from San Diego, as you mentioned in my intro. And uh, one of the first folks I met was Deanna, actually. She was signed up as like a community ambassador, kind of helping welcome people that were moving to Kentucky. And so I reached out to her and reached out to Ricky Santiago because they were both on the website and uh, recognized, you know, the the Hispanic sounding surname. And I thought, you know, I'm going to reach out to people that I'm going to have a connection with. Um, and just I've always loved connecting with other Hispanic Latin folks. And so reached out and both Ricky and Deanna were super uh, excited to meet with me and, you know, have lunch and coffee with me and just start to kind of teach me a little bit about Louisville and the region. Um, and so that, you know, was quite a while ago. And uh, when Deanna came to me and, and started talking to others about this idea she had about how could we do something that is going to really elevate that Latin Hispanic voice, get more Latin Hispanic folks involved civically, I thought, hey, this sounds like a great idea. Uh, I think it's really important. So uh, if I can volunteer some time, if I can volunteer some advice, some guidance, uh, some elbow grease, right? Some of my own perspective as someone who grew up in a community where there's a very large population, large Hispanic Latin population in uh, San Diego, California, which is right on the border with Mexico, um, then let's do it. Um, and you know, one thing I'd like to share is is just from my own experience having seen that evolution in san diego from when i was growing up there in the early 80s you know the, there were a ton of hispanic latin folks all over the community but not a lot of us in in leadership positions but particularly mm -hmm. um political leadership positions and i saw that change over time to where now if you go to san diego you actually see latin hispanic folks in just about every aspect of leadership politically business-wise education-wise etc and so I have that vision in mind of what's possible and want to make sure that we could do something similar in Kentucky as the number of Latin Hispanic folks rapidly grows in the state here as well. Yeah, one of the interesting things about, you know, Latin American populations in, in Kentucky and really a lot of places across the United States, especially if you're not along a border, is that people come from all over the place. Uh, and, you know, here in Kentucky, we have a lot of people from Mexico, Cuba, Puerto Rico, El Salvador, Venezuela, like all over the place. Um, and I mean, both of you two even, you know, come from different places. And David, I, I don't know if you like identify as Chicano or whatever, but you're in like that part of the country or from that part of the country. And Diana, you're from South America. And like those are just 
radically different places uh, in, in terms of the context that you're, you're coming out of in, in, in how you're getting uh, to Kentucky. Uh, and, and, you know, as you kind of start this organization and get it ramped up, you know, uh, there, there's going to be a lot of diversity likely of people coming into it. Uh, so I'm interested to know, like, Nueva Fuerza, are you guys focused on aspects within um, the Latin American population? Are you concerned the fact that, like, maybe your networks are, are focused more on, like, the people that you know? And um, are you are you worried about, like, excluding people from certain part of Latin America as they come to Kentucky and and kind of how, how are you dealing with the the complex diversity of Latin Americans here in in Kentucky uh, well we're trying to be as inclusive as possible with our own networks uh, you know just trying to make sure we get as many people involved in the organization and if they want to be part of it we welcome them uh, uh, I don't. I, th- I think that that sums it up. I'm, I'm not sure you want to add something, David. Sure. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, there's the concern about not being as inclusive as we aspire to be, right? And so, um, Robert, you mentioned it that, um, and it's almost like cliche now that no community is a monolith, right? Whether it's the Latin Hispanic community, whether it's the Black and African American community, it doesn't matter, right? Regardless of what community you're talking about, it is it is not a monolith, and so we, we have given a lot of thought um, to to think through how do we do that proactive outreach. And I think if we look at um, the folks that are most involved with Nueva Fuerza right now, um, you can see representation from just about every part of Latin America, right? So you've got Peru. Mexico, you've got Panama, you've got Colombia, Venezuela, Argentina, uh, you name it, um, Guatemala, um, folks that were born there, folks that were born here, you know, and so that, that's actually something we're, we're really proud of. Um, it certainly will take a lot of additional work to make sure that we continue to be as inclusive as we possibly can. And, and uh, particularly one thing that we give a lot of thought about is socioeconomic diversity. I think the folks that are currently most involved tend to be coming from kind of the more professional class or, you know, folks that um, are college educated and above. And and what we're looking for is uh, how do we do that outreach to folks that actually may be the least connected to our civic uh, engagement opportunities and and our folks that maybe uh, haven't completed high school um, hold a, a sort of more kind of a, of a, a blue collar type profession. Um, and it's going to take a lot of proactive work to be able to connect with all those folks as well. Yeah, it's also really interesting how like place of origin interplays with class and, you know, um, places where people come from, you know, sometimes, they, you know, certain countries send more higher educated or wealthier people to the United States and other countries um, send, you know, less educated and poor people to the United States. And that, that it, it all kind of mixes together in really interesting ways. And this is just part of the uh, political milieu we all live in here in in the United States. Um, and, and, you know, another question I kind of have along those lines is, you know, of course, like you mentioned, no group is a monolith. Every single person is different no matter what their personal context. But there are, like, really strong preconceived notions about the country of origin that people come from, especially when it comes to, like, their politics. And, and since this is, like, a civic organization that wants to intersect with politics, you know, I'm interested about uh, kind of Nueva Fuerza's political leanings. You know, you're nonpartisan. 
by nature you mentioned that but you know you uh there, there is that kind of reputation of people there's a lot of cubans from uh people from cuba or cuban uh people cuban ancestry here in kentucky a lot of people from puerto rico or mexico or, or um you know central america venezuela and all of these places kind of have different political leanings or different preconceived notions that people like me have about their politics so i am kind of interested you know as this organization gets ramped up does it have uh you know a political lean and as different sort of very diverse people people kind of come into it uh how will you deal with the different politics in there um a lot of the training programs that we know about do kind of have a political lean that goes that they go towards even if they are nonpartisan. so i'm interested how you guys are are dealing with that as well yeah, I mean, this is this is certainly one of the inherent complexities of of a civically minded organization, and especially one that's trying to be as inclusive as as we aspire to be. Um, here's what I will say, right? In having conversations with folks across a variety parts of, of a variety of um, parts from the political spectrum, uh, we mentioned our two aims, right? Again, we want to elevate the Latin Hispanic voice. We want to get more Latin Hispanic folks civically engaged, and we ask, like can you agree to those two objectives, right? Are you on board with those two things? And universally, right, folks are like, yes, that makes a lot of sense. We are totally supportive of that. I think as we grow, as we get more into the details of the execution and how we actually operationalize all that and make it happen, inevitably, I'm sure that we're going to have some pretty, you know, uh, challenging conversations that we have to navigate and some folks who may say, you know what, originally I thought I'd want to be part of this and, and maybe now I don't want to be. But, you know, when you think about those two aims, um, certainly some of the things that we would be looking at in terms of policy, in terms of candidates, we'd want to make sure that those policies and candidates support those two objectives, right? That those policies and candidates also want to see more Latin Hispanic folks involved in uh, civically engaged, that they want to be able to see that Latin Hispanic voice elevated. And if the policies and or candidates do not agree with those two aims, I think that's where the biggest uh, point of contention is going to be. That question has come up multiple times in our discussions. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. And there were times where we wanted to take uh, a side on it, but we just decided to keep it, as David said, just focus on the elevating the Hispanic Latinx voice. And we're going to keep it that way and see how it turns out. Uh, I'm sure there'll be people uh, that might not, you know, stay with it. And that's fine. Uh, but we'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> so David mentioned this kind of at, at the top of the show. Kentucky's Latin Hispanic population has greatly increased in the last 20 years. And um, the community has grown, but has the number of elected officials from the community increased? Um, so, you know, what does Latin Hispanic representation look like in Louisville and across the state right now? Um, Jasmine, you might be referring to some of these stats that we were able to include in an op-ed that was published in the Courier Journal on Election Day. Um, so the the exact percentage growth over that time span, actually, it's between 2010 and 2020, was 233 percent increase mm -hmm. in the Latin Hispanic population. Uh, so you know, at this point, we're close to I think 200,000 total uh, Latin Hispanic folks in the state of Kentucky, which is a significant number of folks. Um, when you look at things like voting registration, voting participation, then the numbers do not look as good. And that's one of the reasons why we exist as Nueva Fuerza is to try and uh, change those numbers. So you've got about 50% of the folks in the Latin Hispanic uh, population that are eligible to vote. And about half of those folks actually vote on a regular basis, right? So we know that those numbers are 
one of the lowest in terms of average voter participation across various um, race, racial and ethnic groups. And so again, that's why we're here. That's why the, we've taken on the mission that we have taken on is to start to grow those numbers. Um, but even then, right, even if you look at those numbers and you see some of these margins that recent elections have been won by, you know, you look at the Bashir win, you look at the Bevin nomination, those were like less than 1% type wins, right? Where any very small amount of votes could have swung things in one direction or another. So what we want folks to know is that even with the relatively small number of Latin Hispanic voters in the state of Kentucky, we can decide elections, whether they go one way or another. And as we grow the, the number of participants, that's gonna be even more impactful. So that's on the sort of voter participation side of things. On the elected official side of things, woof, we've got a lot of work to do there um, in sort of our work to try and figure out how many Latin and Hispanic folks are in elected office. We were able to come up with maybe four or five names total um, in the entire state, right? So that mm -hmm. is nowhere near proportional to the amount of, of, of folks overall, or even to the voter participation numbers, and certainly not to the percentage growth that we've seen. And, and so that, that's going to be another huge part of our focus is kind of finding those folks that have some interest in learning more about uh, running for office, getting them more educated, more inspired, uh, more activated around uh, what it looks like to run for office, whether that's, you know, a really sort of something that may be uh, considered entry level from a political office perspective or something really senior and everything in between. Uh, but I, we think that we, as the Latin Hispanic community, have a ton to contribute from political leadership uh, perspective. And, and well, Fuerza is all about uh, getting that to happen. Yeah, I think you make a really good point about Latin and Hispanic voters being able to make a difference in an election. I know I remember um, in, I think it was 2018, how close the congressional race in Lexington was. And I heard some people criticizing Amy McGrath for not sending out Spanish literature in Spanish and, and things like that. And so um, I think that's a very good point. Um, I want to hear, you know, from both of you on this, I think, you know, a lot of people tend to oversimplify issues that are important to Latin Americans. And um, while immigration should be an important issue to all of us, I think Latin American voters consider a much broader set of issues when casting a ballot. And so um, from your insights as people who are working on politics within Latin American communities, what do you think are the most important issues to Latin Americans right now? Uh, I would say, of course, like you said, immigration is, is a big one. Making sure, I uh, know the, the DACA students is, is a big one that comes into, into mind right now, making sure they have the same opportunities to go to school. And, uh, and accessibility, just uh, making it easier for the Hispanic Latinx community to be part of the, like actually contribute to the community uh, a lot of the stuff that is, you know, just just even an example of like hospitals, the stuff needs to be in Spanish. Like there yeah. needs to be a need to have that accessibility for the community so they can, you know, be part of it, understand and just, you know, feel like a true citizen. Yeah, like a true, a true member of, you know, Louisville, Kentucky, like a true citizen. So those are the two things that come into mind right now education and having the right accessibility so they can be part of a community, feel that they are part of a community. 
Yeah, if I could compliment what Deanna was mentioning, we did a, a very you know, sort of brief polling of some of our more, more active members, asking them the same question with the Greenberg administration coming in, in Louisville Metro, we kind of want to know what should we be raising to the Greenberg mm -hmm. administration? And uh, there were definitely lots of nods to this language access component. Um, in fact, I remember going to renew my registration about a year ago and I was sitting there in the downtown office um, waiting for my turn. And suddenly one of the um, attendants there started to kind of you know, try to get people's attention saying, um, is there anyone here who speaks Spanish? Is there anyone who, who speaks Spanish? Uh, and I, I raised my hand like I do, right? But it just struck me, I was thinking, okay, so out of this entire office here, you've got you know probably 20 people in the entire office that are on staff. And I'm sure you've got like probably, you know, 60, 70, 100 people coming through the um, office there to do their registration and all that stuff on a daily basis who probably need language support. And I'm thinking no one on staff here speaks Spanish at all. Like someone just happens to be here that does and, and is able to step in and help out. That that really stood out to me as one of those gaps that, that we have. And I know there's been some recent work to, to uh, improve language access, particularly in, in Metro services. Um, and that's great, really, really supportive of that. So I say language access for sure, um, just in general, Latin Hispanic folks care a ton about education, whether that's pre-K through 12 education, early childhood education, college education. Um, so I would say that's gonna be one of those common issues that regardless of political spectrum, Latin Hispanic folks are gonna be all about education opportunity and making sure that's accessible as possible. And then the last thing I'll mention that's also it came out of that uh, brief polling that we did is around work permitting. Uh, you know, folks that move to the United States want to be here to work, to, you know, bring their families along, to be able to send money back to their families in Latin America. And that starts with having a, a job and being able to make money. Um, and, and there's a lot of issues around work permitting and how folks are able to actually get into a job and, and make money uh, to help themselves and to help their families. No, those are all really good responses. And, and you know, Deanna, I, I really appreciate what you're saying. I mean, it seems like a lot of the, the access issues are, are almost like societal level problems. And po politics is such an important part of solving a lot of those by making places like the DMV or like the, uh, the schools more inclusive and more language inclusive, you know, that spreads to the rest of society. So that's, that's something that would be really great to see in this community. Um, and, and yeah, well, another thing I'm thinking when you're answering those questions is how many levels of government you're touching. Like you're talking about stuff that is like local and state and federal um, that are really important for us to touch. So, you know, they, these these issues that, you know, Latin American people are thinking about every day, you know, uh, being able to understand the levels of government becomes really important because you need to know whether this is a question for your Metro Councilman or your U.S. Congressman. And that's <laughs> that's stuff that mm -hmm. a lot of people don't know. And that's really tough to navigate inside of the government. So it's really glad that you guys are here. So I did want to ask about Nueva Fuerza and what you guys are going to do. So, you know, you there is like this kind of like training component, getting people ready to run for office. And what does that exactly look like? What are you hoping to train people on? What are the things that people can expect to learn if they enter into a program like this? Um, well, we are working on the strategic plan as we speak. Uh, we have, well, I have this idea of having two, I guess, two focuses. We have the part, like you perfectly described, the levels of involvement, how you want to, you know, you have a question about, I don't know, your street or you want to have more of a say in, in, you know, more like of a policy matter. How do you go about that? 
because I still don't know. I'm still, I still have a long way to go to educate myself, but I want to make sure, you know, if I'm like, if I'm, if, if I feel this way, you know, I am sure many people who have a similar background than I do have no idea on how to do that. So the education piece is part of the strategic plan. And also as, as we have kind of ran into people who are wanting to be more involved and I want to run for office, how do we help them, you know, succeed? How do we help them run all the prep work? So we still don't have a plan yet, but it's coming. We have a we have two meetings scheduled for next month, and hopefully by March we'll be presenting the strategic plan, and and we'll go from there. Yeah. So the field for statewide elections and is set for twenty twenty three, and so you guys are working on building your training plan and everything like that. Um, but what do you all hope to accomplish for the twenty twenty four election season? Yeah, it, it, if I could um, kind of go on on what Diana was saying. So plan is in development, but what we do have is aspirations, right? It's that we, we have our dreams and our visions of what we'd like to accomplish. And one of the those possibilities that we're exploring is having a slate of Latin Hispanic folks run for office in 2024 specifically. And uh, we're thinking about this as a group for a few reasons, right? So one, uh, we want to make a splash, right? We want to show that there are many Latin Hispanic folks who are ready to raise their hand, to take a leadership position, to contribute um, as political leaders. And so that's part of the reason why we think a group works well. The other thing that, the other reason why we think a group works well, if it's three to four folks that are running for elected office uh, as a slate is that they're there to cheer one another on. Um, From our conversations that we've had, I mean, self-reflection, right? Just thinking about our own experiences as Latin Hispanic folks, but then in conversations with many people that we've been speaking to, it's very clear that lots of Latin his fo- Hispanic folks find this process of running for office incredibly intimidating. I think that's totally understandable, especially if you've moved here from a different country, you're still getting to know the culture, you're getting to know the governmental systems, you're getting to know the language. Um, it can be very intimidating to think about running for office. Um, and so what we wanna do is almost create like a, a network of moral support that folks can lean on one, each other, on one another, um, support one another, make themselves feel like this is possible and achievable. Um, and so that's one thing to keep an eye out, right, is, is I think here soon you will be able to see um, more and more groups of Latin Hispanic folks running for office and doing it together so that in that group it feels more like, I think what's a really uh, incredible part of our Latin Hispanic culture, which is this idea of doing things in community, doing it together, not necessarily as individuals. And so we're trying to incorporate that into how we think about inspiring folks to run for office. Yeah, all those are really, you know, commendable goals. Uh, something to be really excited about regarding politics. You know, I, Jasmine and I, I think both come from a, a situation where we're looking at something like this and being, you know, it represents something really hopeful about our political system and maybe a moment where we don't have a lot of that all the time. Um, there's so much more that we could ask you about, including, you know, we could ask Diana where the best trufa rice and pisco sours are or ask, you know, David where the best, uh, you know, michelada and tacos are or something like that. But uh, I mean, it, besides that, um, how can people, who are listening to this best support in Nueva Fuerza going forward? Well, we hope to have, uh, you know, all the Facebook and Instagram stuff up and running soon. We will definitely make the first event public. We hope, again, when we announce the strategic plan in March, we hope to get as many people to come to that event. And, um, 
and we hope to keep you know having you know that this momentum that we're having we we hope it keeps going and we get more people engaged they don't have to be latinx hispanic we you know again we're we're welcoming everybody who wants to help and you know work towards the mission which is the most important thing here so you know, if folks want to learn more, um, we're easy to find. We're, we're Diana and I uh, are both really well connected throughout LinkedIn and social media, et cetera. So we're, we're easy to find. Reach out to us. We'd be glad to meet with you over coffee or lunch and have more of a conversation of what it looks like to get involved with Nueva Fuerza, to get more civically engaged, to learn more about politics, to potentially run for office. So please reach out. We'd love to connect with you. Awesome. Well, thank, Diana, you're on. And da- David Lopez, thank you so much for joining us today. We really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jasmine, how can people find out more about us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast and the Ford Kentucky networks. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.